doing great, Brother John. <laughs> Very good. Hello, everyone. This is uh, John Pinto, your roving realtor, Bon Vivant, video blogger, podcaster, home chef, and in this case, Napolitano Americano with my fellow Fratello Napolitano Americano, Giuseppe Pinto, all things customer service, emperor of customer service at Pure Storage and former emperor of customer service at Cisco Systems. Did I say that all right, uh, Giuseppe? You did. You did. And remember, folks, my middle name is uh, Giovanni. So you can guess who gave me my middle name. That's right. Ago. Confirmation. Confirmation name. Very good. So uh, you may be wondering uh, why in the world are John and Joe doing their first podcast together, hopefully the first of many. And on April 21st, 2021, that will mark the 100 year anniversary of our father, Francesco Pinto's birthday uh, 100 years ago, April 21st, 1921, in Torre del Greco, Italy, which is in the province of Campania, uh, just south of Naples, uh, just north of Castellamare di Stabia and Sorrento Meta, where our mother's family is from, and just north of the Amalfi Coast. Did I get that out accurately, Giuseppe? Yes, indeed. <laughs> Very good. So, um, you know, uh, we feel that we hit the jackpot uh, with the mom and dad uh, sweepstakes. How, how do you feel about that, Joe? No, we're very fortunate. Our mother was an incredibly kind woman who treated everyone with respect and dignity. And our father was truly a courageous man and, and was tough and persevered. So we got some amazing attributes from both That's of them. That's right. To quote Annunziata Nancy Baroni Pinto, we are all children of God. God <laughs> bless her. God bless her. And dad, on the other hand, was the ultimate uh, survivor. So let's get a little bit into his uh, history. And for those of you that think you're having a bad day, uh, consider what he had to go through. And you may rethink that. Uh, first of all, he had the uh, very big misfortune of being born in uh, 1921. And I believe, Joe, you may not have this on the tip of your tongue, but I think Mussolini and the fascists took over Italy in 1922. Does that sound about right? It was in the early 20s, not exactly sure when, but the timing could not have been any worse for our father. That's right. And as we will hear in this podcast, uh, our father was subjected to the most murderous killers in the history of the 20th century including Mussolini and the fascists, uh, Hitler and the Nazis, and Albert and Anthony Anastasia, and the mobsters who ran Murder Incorporated. And number one on his most hated hit parade were the fascists, who he considered uh, petty uh, tyrants. Uh, did uh, he uh, impart those feelings to you, Joe? No, he certainly did. I mean, uh, oddly enough, he would, uh, um, you know, because of his upbringing, uh, they were uh, first on his uh, list. First, and I can imagine how repressive that must have been as a child. And uh, I mean, that was in his entire uh, childhood, his youth, his adolescence, because uh, from 1921 until 1939, when he got drafted into the Italian Navy, he was basically just subject to all of that uh, fascist uh, propaganda and uh, had to endure that uh, for quite a while. 
No, that's right. That's right. It would have been tough. And then to worse yet to be drafted and go to war where he uh, obviously had a lot of disrespect and that uh, for the fastest must have been incredibly difficult for a young man at 18. Indeed. So uh, dad did grow up in uh, Torre del Greco right on the coast. If you ever saw that Torre del Greco is uh, known for two things internationally, and that is the cameos. Those nice little uh, ladies uh, made out of uh, uh, the clamshells or whatever they're made out of, and the coral uh, necklaces, the corale necklaces. And uh, he went to school until the third grade and then uh, had to leave work because it was him, his mother and father, and uh, him and his seven uh, brothers and sisters. And, uh, uh, you know, they had to make do to get ahead. And... uh, so then he left the third grade uh, working, delivering uh, fruits and vegetables on, as he used to call it, the horse in the wagon. Uh, he didn't have a Model T at the time. And then when he became a teenager, uh, right away, he went to uh, work on the wood in the ship as a uh, merchant marine. Uh, did he ever tell you the time that he got stabbed on the uh, merchant marine ship, Joe? I don't remember that. Yeah, 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 yeah. He had some adventures on the Merchant Marine ship. So that was another uh, bad actor that uh, tried to kill him. Uh, so <laughs> so fast forward to 1939. Uh, Hitler decides to invade uh, in Czechoslovakia, Poland. He's wrecking havoc on Europe. Uh, Dad turns 18. He gets drafted into the Italian Navy when Mussolini decides to throw in uh, with uh, Hitler and the uh, Nazis. Uh, now, Joe, when you were at home with dad, uh, pretty much by yourself from 1973 to 1979, uh, did he ever impart any stories about any of that? You know, very rarely. As a matter of fact, the uh, one of the few times he mentioned the Nazis in prison camp, when we were watching Von Ryan's Express and the guards are on top of the train with submachine guns, and he turns to me and he goes, Joey, this is how they took me to the prison camp. And I was like sitting there with my mouth wide open as my father turned to tell me this real life story based upon what was on the TV set. Yeah, well, that 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 is a good anecdote. And, you know, that's some of the stuff that he went through. Uh, so yeah. uh, dad uh, was a pretty tough character. He didn't take uh, too much from anybody. And uh, subsequently, when he went into the Italian Navy, he did get into f- fisticuffs with one of his Navy superiors, uh, they threw him in the brig uh, in port. That ship went out. And remember, the Italians were fighting the Brits at that time. And uh, so that ship went out and the uh, British sunk it and there were no survivors. So that was the first episode that I'm aware of, probably after he stepped on the Merchant Marine ship, uh, where he escaped death. So uh, me, you, and our two brothers uh, could actually exist in this world. How about that? One of the many lives that our father had. Definitely nine lives. So uh, during the course of the war, at some point in time, uh, the Italians got fed up with Mussolini. Uh, They deposed him uh, and uh, eventually uh, assassinated him. And when the Italians abandoned the Nazis... Hitler and the Nazis clearly knew that the Italians were not going to fight their American cousins in uh, Brooklyn and Chicago and uh, uh, Steubenville, Ohio. 
so what they did is they threw all the Italian sailors in and soldiers in slave labor camps. And uh, dad did impart to me, Joe, uh, that he had to survive uh, eating straight cats and the broccoli stems uh, that the Nazis uh, discarded and uh, did his best to make the lousiest bombs, sabotaging any bombs that the Nazis were having him and the other Italian prisoners uh, make. Uh, Did you hear that story and any other variations on that story? He did mention that story to me on one or two occasions. What's amazing is that when they discovered it, the guards fortunately convinced the commandant it would be better just to beat him up and it would be bad for morale if they were to shoot the prisoner who made these bombs that did not function. So thank God, another one of many of dad's nine lives that he survived. Oh, I didn't realize that, that he was actually caught sabotaging the bombs in the prison camps. Yes, yes. And they convinced the commandant that to shoot him would be bad for morale. Yeah. And and just uh, in stark contrast, uh, the uh, slave labor camps were different from the uh, Nazi death camps. In the Nazi death camps, like in Auschwitz, um, when you went there, the Nazis were trying to figure out how to most efficiently kill as many people as quickly and cheaply as possible. The slave labor camps, you had a little bit of a better shot because their intent was just to work you to death. That's right. In the camp he was in, he was in with Russian prisoners as well. So he uh, he always talked about how the other prisoners in the camp, besides Italian, were uh, were Russian prisoners. Right. Uh, you know, I've heard stories about how the uh, Berliners were hoping that the Americans got to Berlin before the Russians did, because if the Russians got to Berlin first, it wasn't going to be pretty for the Germans. That's right. There was a race to get to uh, Berlin. But again, another amazing uh, story that he uh, made it through that situation in one piece. Yes. Uh, And then he uh, did impart uh, that he escaped one camp. He never uh, shared with me how he did escape. Then he got recaptured. And then uh, in the second camp, which he was in towards the end of the war, uh, he was liberated by a battalion of uh, black American soldiers who always uh, held a very sweet spot in his heart. He probably told you that story a few times, I would imagine. Yes. No, no. A couple of times he definitely had uh, said that he was uh, fortunate to run in a, into a, um, a squad of black American soldiers and that uh, uh, he was uh, so uh, thankful because at that stage in the war, I don't think the, the Nazis were into uh, recapturing prisoners who had escaped. Indeed, indeed. So uh, as the war was winding down, and the Allies were getting a foothold in Sicily, Salerno, and Anzio, advancing up the Italian uh, peninsula to take uh, Rome, uh, reclaim Italy, and advance to uh, Germany. Um, They did a classic uh, uh, retreat where they destroyed everything as they were moving north on the Italian peninsula. And for those of you who may have seen or want to see a movie called Naples 44, Naples 1944, it really imparts the rampant uh, poverty and destitution uh, that our dad uh, ran into when when he returned home. At that time, I don't know if you know this, Joe, 
but fully 33% of uh, the Italian women had to resort to prostitution uh, to even survive because there was no infrastructure, there was no food, there was no hot water, there was no sewage, there was nothing. The Nazis destroyed everything. Now, I know this anecdotally uh, from just history, uh, but Dad never really mentioned anything about that to me. Did he ever mention anything about that to you? No, he just said it was in a sorrow state of affairs and that there was nothing left to return to when he did return to his home. Yeah. So, you know, he had the nerve to get up and leave. I mean, none of his other siblings or cousins uh, left. So I, I give cra dad credit for that. And when you and I uh, decided to get up and move to California, uh, he was uh, very encouraging. He did not at all try to keep us in New York. I know you and him haven't had a personal conversation about that, right? No, that's right. That's right. There was a particular evening where Red Hook, Brooklyn, was really falling apart at the seams. They had torched an apartment across the street at about three in the morning. I went downstairs to see what was going on. I returned up the stairs. Uh, Daddy looked at me and said, you're going to California. And he was not asking. <laughs> yeah, well, I remember having you on the phone in 1979 and uh, you telling me there's a big risk for me, Joseph, to come to California and I said to you, there's a big risk in you staying in Brooklyn, too. How about that? Oh, I remember that conversation like it's yesterday. Indeed. Indeed. So uh, so then um, Dad um, made the obvious choice. He returned to the Merchant Marines with nothing other than the clothes on his back and uh, an address in Red Hook, Brooklyn, which at the time was a quote-unquote Torese enclave. It wasn't Little Italy. It was Little Torre del Greco. Um, did you, he ever tell you any stories about that, or can you impart any stories about the Torese aspects of the neighborhood? Yeah, because the Italian social club in our neighborhood literally was the Torre del Greco social club, uh, which was pretty, pretty amazing about how many folks had come from that part of Italy just outside of Naples. You know, in our neighborhood, you might as well have been in Italy. And to this day, if I hear a Neapolitan dialect or a Torese dialect, my ears go up like a German shepherd uh, because that's all you heard when you were in the neighborhood. You heard people talking uh, Neapolitan uh, dialect. I'm sure you observe that too, right? Yeah, when I was very, uh, when I was uh, much younger, I remember the uh, language is much more likely to be Italian or Spanish than English in the streets. That's right. Our uh, vocabulary was li somewhat limited, as they certainly did use a lot of curse words in Neapolitan dialect. And Dad would tell us where to go and what to do in Neapolitan dialect. So I still remember all that. That's right. <laughs> like expansive vocabulary, indeed. <laughs> so Dad gets on the Merchant Marine ship. He sails to uh, Baltimore and uh, he jumped a ship. He jumped ship and makes his way to Red Hook uh, in that Torre, little Torre del Greco enclave uh, with that address in his hands uh, and uh, becomes a longshoreman slash stevedore uh, and uh, goes from the uh, fire into the pan, the pan into the fire, uh, where he left Mussolini and the Nazis, uh, uh, Mussolini and the fascists, Hitler and the Nazis, and now he's working as a longshoreman at the Moore McCormick and Bull Lines that are controlled not only by the mob uh, with their shakedown rackets, but by the mob controlled by Anthony and uh, Albert Anastasia 
and their Murder Incorporated crew and their vicious hitmen, Crazy Joey Gallo and Frankie Iliano, are uh, neighbors. Uh, what do you remember about that? So as I was saying, so he winds up at the docks with uh, the mo- most murderous faction of the mob, Murder Incorporated, run by Albert and Anthony Anastasia, uh, with their vicious hitmen, uh, Crazy Joey Gallo and Frankie Iliano and the rest of their crew. And now you probably remember a lot about them uh, because Joey Gallo lived across the street. Frankie Iliano had the uh, restaurant uh, underneath the apartment on Columbia Street. And of course, uh, Joey Gallo had the little social club uh, down uh, President Street with the lion in it, right? No, that's right. I definitely remember the lion and I definitely remember having to walk on the opposite side of the street versus the uh, Gallo's uh, social club. Well, you know, mom and dad were very clear on their instructions to us. Um, Do not associate with those guys. Uh, You know, be pleasant to everybody, but avoid them as much as possible. So pretty much when we walked out of 38 President Street and went past Benevento, it was right at Benevento where we would cross the street to avoid that storefront, right? That's right. Exactly. That corner. Yes. That's right. So dad uh, becomes a longshoreman. He's a single guy, uh, fresh out of two slave labor camps, uh, coming to the United States with nothing. And he meets uh, this uh, lovely Napolitana, Americana uh, woman, Annunziata Nancy Baroni, who became Annunziata Nancy Pinto at a football wedding. Now, do you know how they have that expression football Wedding Joe. I learned it the first time I heard it, that it was a lot of receptions were held in apartments because wedding halls were too expensive. And so if somebody wanted a sandwich, you stuck a few toothpicks in the sandwich and you kind of threw the sandwich like a football to the other side of the room because they would host wedding receptions in people's apartments, which were very small apartments stocked with a lot of. That's right. Throw the the meatball hero across the uh, room. And uh, dad always used to talk about how uh, mom was the life of the party. Uh, He always uh, used to talk about her singing uh, St. Louis blues. Uh, She did not speak Italian. He did not speak English, but I guess it was amore. How about that? No, that's right. And I must admit later on, uh, mom's Italian was so good that she admitted that at times she would dream in Italian and of course, Daddy can certainly carry on a conversation in English. So they both did well to well to communicate. Yeah, and with just each a other. little sidebar. You know, Dad was certainly ready to uh, settle down, get married, have kids, have a job, live the American dream. Because he went to the United States. Because when he he mentioned he, when he used to look at the movies in Italy, he thought the streets in Italy were paved with gold. And I'm sure he imparted that uh, concept to you a few times, right? That's right. He always always talked about that he felt like when he came to New York that they'd be gold in the yeah, streets. Yeah, so, uh, and uh, also, um, uh, Grandma Louise, uh, Grandpa Salberoni's uh, wife, uh, our grandmother, died of childbirth in 1939 when mom was 13 years old at uh, just a freshman in Bishop McDonnell High School. She was probably closer to 14. And Aunt Catherine and Aunt Camilla uh, had Uncle Nicky and Uncle Nicky 
that they were getting ready to get married. And Aunt Gloria and Aunt Josie were still young and needed some kind of a female presence in the house. So she dropped out of Bishop McDonald. And, um, and, and then from 1939 until she met dad, I guess, 10 years later, uh, you know, she was pretty much waiting on her two younger sisters and grandpa hand and foot. So I think she was ready to make an escape. Absolutely. I mean, back then that had to be just hard living and uh, God bless her for making the decision of dropping out of school because even though mom had limited amount of education, she was excellent in writing, excellent in English, and just really had good uh, critical and uh, thinking skills. Yeah, her penmanship was always excellent. You could tell she went to a lot of Catholic school. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, so uh, dad would go to work, and uh, I remember, I mean, he would get up at crazy early hours to go to work, regardless of what the weather was like and i don't know if you remember this um but when he used to come home at night you know at five six seven p.m at night uh in, in those cold blustery winter evenings you could smell the ship and the dock and the sea air and the salt water coming in with him do you ever remember any of that yeah, yeah. I mean, look, his his work would put him outside in the elements for 12, 14 hours, and he would come home and eat a very hearty meal, fall right to sleep. So you were talking about how dad would come in after being in the elements all day? Yes, yes. He'd come in after spending 12, 14 hours of unloading ships and uh, have a very hearty meal, and then uh, poor man would fall straight to sleep because that was pure manual labor of 12 to 14 hours. He had biceps like Popeye. He had biceps on top of biceps. Oh, yeah. No, he had a, he had a bit of a six-pack, too. Even into his late 50s, he was still a guy that was built. Uh, yeah, yeah. Now, uh, this is a good time for me to wax poetic on uh, the music in the house because while he was out, uh, mom used to have that little transistor radio up on top of the refrigerator and she'd be listening to William B. Williams and the Make Believe Ballroom on WHN and WNEW before WNEW uh, went uh, all news all the time, like in Goodfellas in that shower scene. And then dad would come home and that would be end of the William B. Williams and the Make Believe Ballroom. He'd immediately go to the turntable and put on uh, Renato Corazone, Sergio Bruno, Bruni, and Claudio Villa. Do you remember that? I do. I do. I absolutely remember that like it's yesterday. You know, to this day, uh, my soundtrack is very much um, that uh, big band sound and easy listening that mom used to listen to. And I still listen to the Neapolitan music uh, because that Neapolitan music was a laugh riot. And that had good taste in music, especially Renato Corazone, who used to combine all the Neapolitan folk songs with American swing. Uh, so it had a, a really good uh, sound to it. I, I still enjoy that to this day. No, no. I, and the other thing I remember is how mom used to whisper to me that she liked Dean Martin better than Frank Sinatra. Yeah, I think that's because Dean Martin was a looser character. Frank took himself a little too seriously, so I could certainly understand the way she felt. So when he did come back from the docks, uh, I mean, I remember one time him coming back from the docks 
when he walked uh, through a longshoreman picket line and got his teeth knocked out. Do you remember that? I don't. I don't. I certainly remember him talking about it later on in life. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what it was like for him to go down to the docks. Uh, For those of you that have seen on the waterfront uh, with Marlon Brando, I could have been a contender. Um, The longshoremen would what they call, quote unquote, shape up. Uh, so there'd be maybe 50, 60 longshoremen, but only 25 jobs. And one of the rackets that the mobsters would run is they would control the shape up and, um, basically shake down the longshoremen for a kickback if they were going to get, uh, work. And, uh, dad would consistently tell them what to do with themselves and where they could go. Um, so, uh, I would imagine you probably heard a few of his complaints about shaping up and dealing with the mobsters trying to shake them down. He occasionally talked about it, uh, not too often. Occasionally he would uh, bring it up in a moment of reflection. (laughs) Reflection. (laughs) Reflection. (laughs) Yeah, that's one way of describing it. Well, we're going to we're going to play this to other people. So we're trying to keep this PG-13. Oh, yeah. Very good. Well said, Joe. Well said. Uh, So one particular uh, episode was um, for those of you who saw the movie Bugsy, uh, Bugsy Siegel uh, was a Jewish mobster. And one of the prominent um, uh, the prominent female lead in that movie was played by Annette Bening. And that was Virginia Hill, a real person who was Bugsy Siegel's girlfriend. Uh, and also in that movie was Bugsy Siegel's girlfriend, Virginia Hill's prior boyfriend, uh, who was named Joe Adonis. That was his mobster name. And he was one of the guys that was leading the shakedown uh, when the uh, longshoremen would go down to the docks and uh, the mobsters would insist on a kickback in order for them to work. So dad got into it with Joe Adonis, uh, did the diplomatic thing and spit in his face. And um, so um, uh, that week, um, and, and you know what, Joe, I'll let you tell this story. Uh, Joe, when we were over at Aunt Camella's house and uncle's Nikki's house with cousin Maria Louise and cousin Jerry Magdalena, uh, and I queried Uncle Nicky. I go, Uncle Nicky, you worked down at Bull Lines. You worked at Moore McCormick Lines with Dad. How is it that the mobsters didn't just create an industrial accident and drop a pallet on Dad? Because I, I, I'm shocked that they didn't do that because I knew he wasn't a get-along kind of guy, and he would confront them at every opportunity. Do you remember the details of the story he told us? I do. It was in 2002. We were visiting our Uncle Nick, you know, who was very ill. A few days later, he was going to pass. And when we brought that up, he got halfway up in the bed. Mm-hmm. And literally, uh, as the eyes got wider, and he said, well, that's because your grandfather uh, uh, vetoed the uh, the hit that they wanted to put on your father. And I was like, holy cow. That's right. Grandpa Baron- Sal Baroni, who had a candy store with no candy in it. Indeed. Oh, my God. What did he have under that newspaper that he had on the countertop all the time? 
Well, I think he used to uh, do some uh, numbers uh, as a service for the community. <laughs> well, just so everybody realizes, uh, Grandpa Salbaroni was born in 1900. Uh, so he turned 21 when Prohibition kicked in. It was illegal to sell the booze, but it wasn't illegal to buy it. So uh, he had a little speakeasy, uh, numbers, and, uh, and a card club. Now they call it the lottery. So uh, if you remember, Joe, mom never once complained about growing up in the Depression and wanting for something, you know, being in poverty and not having money. I think grandpa did pretty good during, during Prohibition. No, that's right. Considering there was no, um, you know, considering uh, the depression and that uh, they uh, always had food on the table, which was a big thing back then, because many people did not have food on the table back in those uh, in those 30s. That's right. I think the best part of that story that Uncle Nick DeFusco told about Grandpa Sal stopping the hit on uh, dad was uh, he also volunteered that, that that was timing that preceded your conception. That's right. That's right. When you gave us the timing, I was especially thankful to be here. So I'd like to say thank you to the, uh, to the man upstairs that I am here because that would have happened in about, I think it was two years before I was born. So there you go. Joe, dad had nine lives, but I think you got seven. <laughs> Maybe not nine, but you got seven. You got seven. I think I inherited some of his uh, uh, livability. Uh, yes, 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 survivor indeed. Uh, so, um, so after uh, going to uh, one of seven family funerals in uh, 2002, uh, I'm sure you remember that when we went to Aunt Josie's uh, funeral in Manhattan um, in May. Remember that? Yes. And yes. remember when I told you, Joe, get ready they're going to start dropping like flies. No, that's right. That's right. Because they were all of that uh, type of generation where they were all aging and they had good lives considering for the years they were born, many of them had smoked that they had good lives and that, um, and so thank God. And even our father, you know, even though he uh, smoked and survived a prison camp, uh, lived to the age of 81, I believe. Yeah, that's right. I remember when uh, Ellen's brother, Peter Serino pulled out a box of Tarryton and my father looks at him with scorn on his face. Dad looked at him with scorn on his face and he goes, baby. And he pulls out the lucky strikes, taps them, pulls one out and goes, smoke a real cigarette. <laughs> That's right. And folks, if you don't remember, Tarryton's were a very thin cigarette originally marketed towards women. And that, uh, so when Peter pulled out this thin cigarette, our father, Frank, quickly intervened and said, Petey, come on, you need to smoke a real cigarette and broke out the unfiltered Lucky Strikes. That's right. So, uh, you know, after uh, Aunt uh, Josie's uh, funeral, you and I went right down to Scotto's funeral hall on first place uh, the next day and uh, uh, made arrangements, exchanged phone numbers, uh, picked out a casket, picked out a suit, picked out a dress. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was one of the best things that we ever did because when we got those two terrible phone calls in, uh, September for mom of 2002 and December for dad, uh, in 2002, um, you know, I was the one that fielded the phone calls 
And I just called Buddy Scotto's office and uh, they were both in the middle of the night. And he said, no problem. I'll call the nurses. Let's talk tomorrow. We'll make arrangements. So I am very thankful that you and I had the foresight to set all that stuff up uh, after Aunt uh, Josie's funeral. No, an important life lesson to be prepared, especially if one's aging family lives outside of the immediate area, to be tasked with that decision in the moment would be almost too great. So uh, fortunately, uh, like you said, uh, we were prepared when the moment came, uh, uh, which made a big difference. That's right. But uh, precedent to that moment uh, was after mom had died and, uh, uh, you know, I had gone to other funerals like Aunt, Aunt Rita, my godmother, um, you know, we would always wind up at uh, Ristorante Napolitano 215 under the apartment that dad was living in. And as I was departing uh, for the airport one day, I see, uh, don't call him punchy Frankie Iliano hanging out in front of the restaurant, the owner. Uh, and if you remember in a prior uh, statement we made in this podcast, he was one of the hitmen uh, for Murder Incorporated, along with Joey Gallo. And uh, but that was then and this was now and he had a good restaurant and uh, the Linguini and Clams was good. And that was the main thing. So I, <laughs> I give him 500 bucks and I said, Frankie, don't call him punchy. I said, Frankie, my father's upstairs. You know, my dad. You know, uh, my mom's gone. He's there by himself. It's hard for him to cook for one. So here's 500 bucks. When you see him, you know, ask him if he wants some sausage and peppers, linguine and clams, mussels, marinara, eggplant, parmesan, whatever he wants, just give it to him. So fine. So I go to California. I come back uh, for yet another funeral, not his yet. And um, uh, I don't think you were with me when this happened, Joe. Uh, but I'm making my way to the apartment and Frank uh, and I'm walking past the restaurant and, you know, they're all in the back the way they normally are around a big round table with the cigarettes, the cards and the espresso. And they see me in front of the storefront and they all catapult out of their chairs and race to be the first one to me. And I said, hey, guys, what's going on? <laughs> Why are you guys so excited? And they said, we got to tell you what happened. I said, what happened? They said, well, last week, uh, Frank Iliano saw your uh, father. And he goes, hey, Frankie, you want some linguine and clams, sausage and peppers, mussels, marinara? And your father said, Frankie, I remember you. I remember the docks. I remember what you and your crew did down at the docks. And then he told them where to go and what to do to himself. And they were just tickled pink because Frankie was a contract killer. They never saw anybody uh, confront Frankie like that and not wind up on the pavement in a pool of blood. <laughs> That's right. This would be, if we gave the exact wording, this would become an R-rated podcast. So there you go, folks. That's right. That's right. So, um and, you know, and now that I'm thinking about that little episode on Columbia Street, remember when you, me and David uh, were talking to dad in front of the apartment and we're carrying on a conversation. He's got the cigarette in his mouth and all of a sudden we completely lose him and he gets this expression on his face 
uh, like when a cat sees a bird. You know that expression? Yes. Okay. Oh, yes. So I turn around and I see, and he has spotted a cute Puerto Rican girl with the uniform, you know, the platform candies with the uh, cutoff tight short uh, jean shorts with the tube top on the top and the Jerry curl and the curly hair. And so I'm looking at him. I'm looking at her. She's walking past him. He looks at her and he goes, Ooh, la la. <laughs> you remember that? I almost died. And thank God she <laughs> enjoyed the moment and laughed with us and that uh, continued to go on to her business. But I almost fell over and that uh, I remember that like it's yesterday. Uh, he, he was pretty funny despite himself. He wasn't trying to be funny, but he was funny. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, you know, dad lived his life. He outlived, you know, the Mussolini the fascists, Hitler, the Nazis, Albert and Anthony Anastasia. I think Anthony Anastasia wound up on the floor in the barbershop at uh, the Waldorf Astoria in a pool of blood. Uh, Joey Gallo, he got gunned down uh, uh, at Umberto's Clam Bar in the middle of the intersection uh, after that Joe Colombo episode. We'll save that for another podcast. Uh, but, you know, dad lived his life. He retired from the International Longshoremen Association. He died relatively peacefully at age uh, 31 in uh, at age 81 in his sleep. So as I was saying, so dad, you know, went on to live his life, retire from the International Longshoremen's Association, which is a pretty good uh, uh, association. He had the guaranteed wage and he retired, what, at 50 or even earlier, maybe? No, no, he actually retired into uh, later 50s. But the good news, the last five, six years, if there wasn't enough work, he got to be sent home because of the years he had put in, which was a savior, because I cannot imagine unloading ships physically six days a week as you go into your late 50s. So, uh, and, the, and the medical and dental benefits were very rich. That's right. That's right. They guaranteed the wage. That's right. He was guaranteed to get paid regardless. That's right. Johnny, I got it to guarantee the wage. He was very happy about that. So he died uh, peacefully at the age of 81 on December 12, 2002. Uh, that's uh, St. Stephen's Day, Santo Stefano, and uh, outlived uh, Mussolini, the fascist, Hitler, the Nazis, Albert and Anthony Anastasia. Uh, Albert got gunned down in the Barbershop and the Waldorf historian wound up sprawled all over the floor. Uh, outlived uh, Joey Gallo by many years and all those guys, and um, uh, died uh, peacefully. And uh, uh, you know, to me, he was an amazing survivor. Uh, he was a great dad because you know he provided for us all the time. Always went to yes. work regardless of anything. He was a great example to his four sons, uh, you and I, and. Uh, Robert and uh, David, and, uh, you know, really through his survival uh, made our nice American lives uh, possible. No, that's right. I mean, look, uh, Francesco Pinto, if you think about what he did, it's a true American success story and also a true American hero as he purposely made bombs wrong in a prison camp at grave risk to himself. So it's just an unbelievable story. And for him to end up 
in America, it was a miracle to have four wonderful children was a miracle. And to live to 81, considering uh, he smoked, considering the time in prison camp, considering uh, some of the uh, things that occurred to him in the waterfront was truly a miracle. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, in our American lives, we never have our lives threatened the way he did. But, uh, you know, we all have tough times. uh, And uh, I just think about the tough times that he had. And it's always an inspiration how however difficult uh, times appear to be tough. I always think about what he had to prevail over. And that always gives me strength to deal with anything that comes my way. It's very true, John. It's very true. You know, one of my Zoom pictures is the Port Authority of uh, New York. It's the Red Hook uh, Terminal sign. And people ask me about it. And I go, well, my American-born uncles uh, lived during the Depression. My father, obviously Italian-born, lived during the Depression. They went to war. They came back and they unloaded ships, which was hard, dangerous work. So anytime I get a little cranky for being on one too many Zoom calls, I just look at that background and I smile. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. And if, uh, it, well, you know, as far as mom being proud of you, being proud of us, I don't, I think mom's uh, love and pride was unconditional, uh, regardless of how we wound up. Uh, but I, but yes. I think dad would definitely beam uh, just a little bit, uh, you know, knowing that his uh, four boys uh, grew up and did well. Yeah, that's right. He would indeed. Quite an amazing man. So, uh, no. Very good. good. So we have taken this opportunity to memorialize a little story about uh, Papa Pinto. These are just a few stories and anecdotes uh, that we have heard and been exposed to over the years. Uh, Joe, uh, anything else that you want to add before we conclude? No, I appreciate uh, us uh, being able to uh, do this. It brings back some wonderful uh, memories. And in part, it's the reason why that uh, we are the characters that we are. Characters, indeed. Characters, indeed. Yes, indeedy. (laughs) Yes, indeedy. So and and and, you know, uh, throughout the uh, uh, your entire lifetime that you've known me, I, I gravitate towards characters. Most of my friends are characters. That's true. That's true. The, uh, uh, indeed. So uh, with that, no, an amazing uh, moment to go through our father's amazing life. And that, uh, thank you all for listening to this. Yes. And uh, we will see you on the next podcast. Bye for now.